Welcome to the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm Jennifer Silliman, and this show is continuing the conversations started in the award-winning first-ever documentary film about maternal mental health. My journey as an advocate began through the power of storytelling. With this podcast, I hope to create a community of women and professionals sharing their own powerful narratives to let others know they're not alone and help is out there. Keep in mind that some of the stories you will hear may be triggering, but it's important they be told. This podcast is not a replacement for professional help from a licensed medical provider. If you or someone you know is suffering due to a maternal mental health condition, please contact your medical provider or call or text message the Postpartum Support International Helpline at 1-800-944-4773. Now let's continue the conversation. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm here with Featherstone, a non-binary nurse practitioner and perinatal mental health specialist. They organize the Greater Richmond Perinatal Mental Health Coalition and serve parents and partners in Idaho through Eucalyptus Health. It's a telehealth practice focused on inclusive, accessible, and holistic mental health care. Welcome, Featherstone, to the podcast. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into this. You recently published an article on Brave New Mom titled, Can Anyone See Me? Non-Binary Parents in Today's Society. And I have to tell you that after I read the article and I looked at the work that I'm doing, whether it be the language that I use on paper, posters, my website, um, how I speak, about PMADS, Um, I look at it through a different lens now. And so first and foremost, thank you for writing this article and and in this context um, so that I think other providers can read this and be like, yeah, some things have to change. Like this, it's like, gives me goosebumps, it's so good. Cause you, and I, and I, I'm going to have to quote since I'm promised you, I will let you talk in just a second, but there, (laughs) I'm so excited about this. Um, I want to quote one of the things that you say in this article, you say, um, by buying into the gendered branding of parenthood, you have effectively excluded anyone who doesn't feel aligned with the label of mother. I know that this generally isn't the intention, but unintended effects are still the outcome and it shouldn't be surprising. And I look back again on these projects or whatever it may be, the names of programs, the names of support groups, the literature, and how it is so gender focused and that branding is so apparent. You know, what happens to non-binary parents who are trying to fit into this trying to fit into a village that doesn't necessarily see them. Now it's your turn. You can talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny. Um, When Jesse Everts and I connected and we were writing blog posts for a swap, um, I, I told her like the quick version of my background and my own life story, my experience that brought me to working in PMADS. And I was really surprised when this was what she asked me to talk about. Um, because even from my own perspective, you know, obviously non-binary parents aren't um, a, 
a majority by any stretch of the imagination. And we're not a group that I feel like anybody's really out there catering to. Um, so it hadn't even occurred to me that I would write about my experience as a non-binary person. And for anyone who hasn't read the article, this is where I wanna say like, non-binary people are not a monolith. We are not all the same. My experience is different. Um, I'm very female presenting. I was assigned female at birth. I identify as non-binary now, but I am very forgiving of folks who haven't known me very long or knew me for a very long time when I did identify as a woman. Um, and I use she, her pronouns because it's hard to shift in your mind. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I've had people who I feel like stress out about it too much and then they apologize profusely when they slip, but to err is human. And it makes me more uncomfortable when someone is profusely apologizing for something that's not a huge deal. Saying sorry one time and then moving on is like the kindest thing you can do for everybody involved. <laughs> yeah, and you actually made that point in your article. I'm trying to figure out where it is. Oh, here. Um, if you want to avoid causing harm, please choose your words carefully and brief, sincere apologies go a long way for when you stumble. Um, that stood out to me because I am a person who constantly apologizes for things. Um, I'm getting better at it, but I can totally see how somebody would think that that would make it better. Um, so I think it's like a good point that you make that it really just kind of makes me very uncomfortable if you just keep <laughs> apologizing about it. Yeah, well, uh, I think some people feel like they have to address it like as soon as possible. So sometimes there's almost like this urgency of like, well, now I have to interrupt the rest of the flow of the conversation to go back and apologize or else the guilt is going to eat away at me. And I feel like if you just say something later, like in private to that person, hey, I, I screwed up your pronouns. I'm sorry. Like that is so much better than in the middle of a big group conversation being like, oh my God, I misgendered you. It's like, <laughs> you're just shining a giant spotlight on me and I'm real uncomfortable right now. Um, because like, I understand it from both sides. Like folks don't want to misgender you and make you feel bad, but also let's look at what the apology goal is? Is it to make the person who messed up feel better or is it to right the wrong? And if we're looking to right the wrong, it doesn't have to be that exact minute. Um, and it definitely doesn't have to be public. And so like, I feel like that's a thing I deal with, like in my personal life, even like, you know, I have people who've known me a long time and they'll slip and it happens and it's not a big deal. They know I still love them, but I do like it when people are like, Oh, oops. Like, and it's not a big deal. Yeah, that was, that really stood out to me in that, um, in your article. Um, you know, and I look back and like I had said, look, just in my own personal journey of being in this realm of, of and even just saying maternal mental health, I mean, how it's so, so, so mom, gendered. woman, gendered focus, it's really crazy to me. Um, how like some different stuff in my Instagram. I don't know if you've gotten to take a peek at it. I have. I have. I love it. <laughs> so not everyone who gives birth or decides to lactate and feed their infant with their body identifies as a woman. So imagine how if you identify as a man calling your chest, your breasts, like breast is such a gendered word. Um, and they're overly sexualized no matter what your gender is. So chest feeding has been a sort of counterbalancing term that's out there um, that I really like that I try to use pretty regularly. Um, and 
And I, what I hope for people to take away from our conversation is not that I expect you to never say the word breastfeeding ever again, but if you alternate saying breastfeeding and chest feeding, people will pick up on that and it will make these terms more comfortable for everyday use. And I think that when people hear that and they know that you're making an intention to be more expansive in what your understanding of parenthood is and that it's not just cishet females giving birth to babies, that it can be anybody of any gender identity with, you know, giving birth and having the same PMAT experience, um, especially with the compounded stressor of being in a marginalized community and any other intersecting identities they may have. Um, because those all contribute to our mental health and our sense of community, which we know is integral to supporting our mental health and how we interface with structures like the healthcare environment and the school environment and all these other places where people have historically been marginalized. Yeah, you just got me thinking about um, even just putting any sort of um, emphasis on fathers. Like when we're talking about mothers and we don't even talk about fathers, um, partners or, and you know what I mean as far as, okay, here's a good example. So I um, run a program for teen moms. Okay. And every, and, and we're grant funded, of course. And so, you know, our grants very specific, uh, who, what client we have to serve. It has to be a teen mom. Okay. Parameters in high school, 18 or younger, you know, very specific. And very often we'll get people to say, well, what do you do for the teen dads? And I'm like, uh, well, we don't do anything because we're not we don't have funding for that. Like we, you know, we can't. And just that it's a whole unit. So even like that bare minimum of just, if we are staying in that kind of gendered centered world, that it, we still totally alienate someone who's a part of the process. <laughs> and it's, uh, and yeah. And I'm, the good news is that there are some influential voices speaking out about paternal mental health. Um, Mark Williams is out in the UK and he is very vocal. I really love his stuff he puts on LinkedIn. Um, there's a new organization called Miscarriage for Men that has been really lovely. Um, of course, off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of the man who started it, but everything that he's put out is really good. Um, Chris Mays is the dad's coordinator for Postpartum Support International. Um, and Peck Endman is one of one of the professionals who's been doing perinatal mental health for a long time and, and gives a lot of voice to fathers um, in her social media in particular, which is really good. Um, it, it's great that we're going beyond mothers, but there's a lot of people who don't necessarily fit either of those labels that have other parent titles that they use or people who just don't fit in those neat boxes of woman or man who are parents. And I feel like it's been a lot more common for people to get comfortable with different gender expressions, like the idea of butch lesbians, women who are attracted to women and express as very masculine. Um, but there's not a lot of nomenclature. Um, you know, in, in some communities, sometimes the other parents will be called the other mother. 
like the, the mother that did not give birth, but it's, it's really unfortunate that we haven't expanded to just like parents, like parents, period. Like I market my company to parents and partners because really anybody who's a part of that family unit, who's taking a parental role or who is really closely emotionally tied to that parent, they can be affected because adding a baby to your family, growing your family, having a pregnancy, having a pregnancy loss, those are all things that can affect everyone involved. Like I've even heard stories of grandmothers who were grieving so acutely, like the losses of their children, like when their children had pregnancy losses. And so it's like, you know, that's not captured, but that's still a valid emotional experience. And there's no one out there addressing their cognitive dissonance and their grief. And so we, we really have to broaden our scope when we look at PMADs, like, yes, it's perinatal, but who is our target? It's not just the people experiencing the acute hormone changes in the blood loss or the chest feeding. It's, it's looking more at the unit as a family and not just the dyad of the person giving birth and the baby. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, like a Rolodex in my head going through all the things, projects that I've been a part of or whatever, and just kind of going through and like what things that I've said or things that we've put out there that really do exclude a decent amount of people. And even, you know, support groups that are, I'm trying to think the very first support group, that's how I started all of my, you know, I, I suffered and I was like, I know other moms are suffering. Um, you know, I need to start a support group. And so I started support groups at our local libraries down here. Um, and they were called mom to mom with the number two, mom to mom, you know, and we would always get, I, I would always get that question. Well, can, can I bring somebody or like, is it only moms? And you don't realize, I mean, obviously my heart of hearts, uh, yes, please, anyone, anybody can come. You can bring your dog, like whatever, whatever makes you feel comfortable, right? Bring whoever. But you don't realize that people really do kind of think about it just based on the title alone of the support group. Oh my gosh, I don't think I can bring anybody else like this. I mean, we're excluding, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it almost makes me speechless because you don't realize it. Like you just, like you said, and you said it somewhere, you know, we have these intentions that are good. Like we really do, but it doesn't change the outcome. I mean, people are still being affected by those anyway. And I think, you know, from my perspective of caring about social justice, um, my goal is not to shame or punish anybody for doing wrong. My focus is now that you have this information, what are you going to do with it? Because now that you have the information, like you have the tools to make it better. And so I don't want anybody to harbor, you know, guilt of, oh no, I didn't use inclusive language. Like I'm bad or anything I did was bad. Like, yeah, you know better, you do better. And now you're going to have build more inclusive things. And when you ask for grants, you're going to expand to parents because they are a unit and because supporting all of them supports the baby better and the parents. Um, so I, you know, this, this might be an inflection point for like how you market all of your stuff. And I am so excited to think that I've had that impact on you because the film that you made made an impact on me. And that's just like a really incredible like synergy um, that we don't always get to experience in a professional way. 
That's so true. Yeah, stay tuned, listeners, because Dark Side of the Full Moon's website is getting an overhaul. That will happen this weekend. <laughs> For sure. Oh, that's and exciting. I think, and I think that's very true. I mean, I think, and you know, obviously when you, when you, when you know better, you do better and that, and, and having the tools now, you know, and, and not just, and really, um, I mean, like the art, I'm going to actually post a link to that article, but within that article, there are other links, um, that I invite my listeners to click on and, you know, you're, you're going to be click, click, clicking because there, there's the articles everywhere, but they're all so good about explaining the different kind of facets of this, especially in like the maternal world of, of that. I mean, that, what, instead of call, so what do you call, so, okay, so I'm being very candid now. What, so we, I mean, we constantly call it maternal mental health. So we just call it parental mental health. Or how do, how do you go about addressing that and like so, not using that term? I avoid maternal mental health, even though it is people who identify as women and mothers that generally come to my practice. Um, I also serve LGBTQ folks because I feel an obligation to be the healthcare provider that I never had as a young queer person um, to talk to for mental health stuff. Um, I use the term perinatal because I want to focus on pregnancy in the first year postpartum, but I also see parents further along. I don't like the way parental sounds. I just like, I think perinatal really is better at capturing the population that I'm super experienced with. Um, I did years in labor and delivery. I originally started my training as a nurse midwife before I switched to my women's health NP. Um, my focus is really sexual and reproductive health. Um, before I branched out into mental health. And so having that background, I feel like my skill set best serves people who are in the thick of it with the pregnancy and the postpartum. And so perinatal encompasses that whole spectrum of time. Um, but honestly, I don't turn anyone away who is like, I read your profile on psychology today and I think we're a good fit. I'm like, great, come on down. We'll talk. Um, because I know how hard it is for so many people to get to the point where they're ready to ask for help. Yeah. I mean, and that's the hardest part. Anyone who is suffering, that's a really hard thing to come forward and say, yep, I need help. You know, especially like you said, when you come from, you know, uh, a population that's so marginalized that it's like, and, and we all know that, and I think a lot of people, and you even said it about your midwife, how you connected, you know, you had had one appointment with her that was the person that you broke down on. And I'm realizing now that that is in our last podcast, but that is okay because I'm going to link our other podcast to this one so people can hear the entire story because this did become a two-part series. Um, but it's so true. And you, you, usually why you know that happens is because we identify with that person some, on some level, whether it's just emotional or they just had that empathetic kind of aura that came from them. I mean, that was me. I just needed anyone to show me a little empathy, you know, not just, you know, anything. And, and I didn't get that until I met my psychiatrist who, oh my goodness, like we all remember that. Ex I mean, we all remember those experiences so vividly because they were so impactful, especially as the start of our healing process. Um, like for me and having intrusive thoughts, I still remember the exact moment where I was in the mall, what store I was in front of when 
I had realized that I hadn't had an intrusive thought for like two hours and my world changed. Like you just know, like you remember those things that happened are so powerful that you just remember every little detail about them. So yeah, it's, it's super important that, you know, people that are reaching out for help have that person that they can identify with. Um, and I think it's wonderful that people can read, read your little bio on psychology today and, and be like, yeah, you're my, you're my person. Like this is, <laughs> it's you're so, who I need. It's so funny because, um, when I worked before in a ketamine clinic, um, and I was, kind of doing like case management and managing infusions. Um, a lot of our patients had quote heavier quotes here, failed therapy. Like they tried therapists and didn't like it for a variety of reasons. And I would tell them like, you need to treat finding a therapist, like finding a partner. Like I want you to date and talk to different people and see who you mesh with because it doesn't necessarily mean that the first one you talk to is going to be the one. And even if you've been with someone for years and they were great for you when you were dealing with these life issues, your life is going to continue to change and evolve. And just because they were good then doesn't mean they're right for you now. And so a lot of the permission that I was giving was for people to fire therapists and find new ones or to shop around and date a little bit. And so I know that I'm using that word date very loosely because obviously I'm not encouraging any sort of inappropriate therapist-patient relationship. Um, but I know that people understand what I mean because it's very strange to walk into a room with someone or, or start a video visit for the first time with somebody and just like unpack all your stuff. Like, because a psychiatric evaluation is like, let's start at the beginning. Tell me about growing up. What were you like as a kid? Like, tell me about all your health conditions ever. Tell me about like the things that bother you the most. And my goal with my practice is not just to ask all the right questions so I'm getting the right information for me to make my clinical decisions, but also to show empathy and to not judge people because I will never forget, like I've had moments in doctor's offices where people ask me questions and I'm a patient and I just feel like I get really still like the rabbit who's been caught in the middle of the meadow. And I'm like, I don't even want to answer that. That's really uncomfortable and invasive. And I feel like I've gotten really good at like noticing when I'm accidentally doing that to somebody. And I have the language now to say, Hey, you always have permission to tell me when you don't want to talk about something or you want to talk about it later. Like you can always tap out with me. Like you don't owe me anything. I, obviously I can make a better decision clinically when I have all the information, but sometimes you just telling me you don't want to talk about it is enough information. And so I love making it a safe space because I feel like a lot of my clients haven't done a lot of telehealth. Um, and telehealth is a weird beast. I, a very weird beast. Yes. I went from doing midwifery, you know, as a student, um, where everything is very low tech, high touch, like, let me rub your back while you're in labor. Let me hold your hand while you cry. And now I'm doing like so much of the same education about people's bodies and their pregnancies and their postpartum and their neurotransmitters that are affecting their mood. Um, but I tell them, and I feel like I say this every day that I'm in my practice, the hardest part about telehealth is not being able to hold someone's hand and not being able to hand them tissues because that's all I want oh, to do. <laughs> I love that. Oh my goodness. Yes. And it's so funny that you say that about holding somebody's hand because 
I always tell people through my own, from my own experience that if somebody, I don't care if it was the cashier at the grocery store, when I was standing there looking, I know I just looked like I was looking into Never Everland, just going through the motions of what I had to do to get food and get out of that store before I had a panic attack. If somebody would have just really looked at me and like grabbed my shoulders or touched my hand and said, are you okay? I mean, that would have been it. I would have broken down and, and got the help that I needed. I needed someone to give me that permission, but it's more than just, so how are you doing? It's more than that. It's a touch. It's a, it it's takes a, a special connection. person. It's a human connection. Exactly. Um, so what would you tell So, okay. We have all kinds of people that listen to this podcast. So I'm wondering what you, two things, I have two questions for you. First, what would you say to somebody who is listening, who perhaps is a non-binary parent and they need to reach out for help? I mean, other than looking you up on, on Facebook and psychology today, so you can work with them, what would you tell them? I think it's hard because LGBTQ community social centers are so often places that are not family friendly. You know, we have dance clubs and we have bars and, and socials. Um, and in an ideal world, there would be LGBTQ parent groups. I know that Postpartum Support International has LGBTQ coordinators, um, Leslie Fabian. So if you're struggling with a mental health condition, I would say that's where I would direct you because they have online support groups and connecting with people who have that commonality is important. Um, any marginalized group will want to have their safe spaces. Um, but I hope that you can interface with all kinds of other families at places like parks and indoor play areas. You know, that was really the thing that helped me was there was like one cute little coffee shop indoor play area where older kids could like rough and tumble on like gymnastic mats and parents could have coffee. And there was like a little baby corner where like the crawling ones would be contained. And so you could like step away and watch your older kid do a handstand, but still have an eye on your baby. And none of the walls went up higher than waist level. So all the parents are like on the same eye level and it was great for making friends. Um, even a lot of friends who were nothing like me, but those friendships that started when I had a toddler and I was visibly pregnant, um, those friendships have evolved into my community, my community. Now that I'm, I am parenting a tween and a school age kid and my, my challenges are incredibly different, um, especially in the context of COVID. But I feel like seeking other parents, even if they're not in the queer community, um, I think that's what you need. And I feel like sometimes being someone's first friend who's really different can open their eyes and, um, but the most important thing is just sussing people out for being open to that. There needs to be intellectual curiosity because if you're not interested in using someone's right pronouns or understanding that their family is a little different or 
a myriad of other things. If there is an intellectual curiosity, it's probably not going to go anywhere. Um, so just leveraging whatever social network you have to try to find um, allies who are also parents. And so for, how about for professionals, providers that are listening to this going, oh my goodness, I, need, I really do need to change language or I need to present my practice differently because I don't want to exclude anyone, you know, what's your, what's your advice to them or your suggestion? So for larger practices that have money to throw at that problem, there are consultants. There are DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion consultants that can walk you through changing your PR, changing your forms, looking at your EHR, your electronic health record. Because when I enrolled with my health record, I'm going to plug here Athena Health. Um, they're an incredible product and it works great to meet all of my needs for my telehealth practice. Um, but when I tried to enroll as a provider, I couldn't put in the gender marker in my enrollment page that matches my driver's license. So I had to pick the next closest thing and it didn't have a thing for my pronouns. They asked for patient pronouns, but there was nowhere for my pronouns. So they'd done all the things to accommodate patients, but there was no acknowledgement that gender non-conforming, transgender, non-binary providers exist. And that's a big misstep. And I had an okay onboarding experience with them, but then I was linked with my customer success manager, who's sort of like my partner with my practice moving forward. And it was, there's no denying that like it was meant to be because Lauren Borenstein uh, has become like a friend of mine. He's a trans man and he has been a huge champion for getting the Athena product changed to accommodate providers like me and small things like that, like a little bit of program code changed so that the same things on the patient side or on the provider side. It's huge for feeling seen. Like I'm not, um, you know, a, a circus freak that just doesn't fit in anywhere because that is an incredibly terrible and heavy thing to carry around as a human being when you're just trying to do your job. Featherstone, you will be back. I don't know what we're going to talk about next, but I uh, for sure know that I'm going to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, for sure. I have enjoyed it so much. It was not exactly what I expected we'd be talking about, but I'm excited about it. I'm so glad you're excited about it because I think it's such important information and a, a great conversation to get out there into the world um, for people to hear. So thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. Absolutely.